2: My husband and I were on the way back home from Navarre Beach, heading towards the Alabama line. It was storming really bad that night, as soon as we were passing Blackwater Forest. It slacked up a bit. We both saw Bigfoot walking across the road. By the time we were coming up on it, it was almost to the other side. He looked so shocked, like a deer in headlights. I asked my husband if he saw the same thing that I did, and he agreed. I couldn't believe that we had seen it. A couple of weeks ago, we got sad news that our older woman friend that had stage 4 cancer passed away. Yesterday, her daughter updated everyone with where they were having all the memorial services at, and one of the places just stunned me. They opened a restaurant, and it's called Bigfoot Crossing, exactly in the area that we had seen it. So now I'm wondering how many more sightings. I mean, it's got to be quite a bit. Now I want to go back and check out the area more. Reports of a large bipedal canine resembling a hyena have been circulating around Grand Rapids in the lower peninsula of Michigan. Officer Blackburn had his incident on February 2, 1999, and I was the one who responded to the call. We received reports of an unidentified animal spotted on King Highway near Riceland Drive in Comstock Park. Since our jurisdiction covered the entire county, we quickly made our way to the scene. According to the witnesses, they were driving when they suddenly caught sight of something darting across the road and disappearing into the nearby woods. Their description sent chills down my spine a creature standing about six feet tall, covered in black fur with a long and swiftly moving tail. Its movements were eerily fluid, reminiscent of a kangaroo. They expected it to leap over a nearby ditch, but it never did. The most unsettling detail was that it ran on two legs. Without wasting any time, I ventured into the wooded area, following the tracks I found in the snow. Step by step, I pressed forward. Keen on uncovering the truth. The tracks led me deeper into the woods, and for about fifteen minutes I diligently pursued their trail. However, my efforts came to an abrupt halt when the tracks vanished at a steep embankment. The feat of scaling that bank with feet like those I had seen was impossible, with massive canine feet measuring around twenty inches in length. It was perplexing and added another layer of mystery to the situation. Interestingly, the reports of this creature have only emerged during daylight hours, with no known sightings of the creature at night. This deviation from typical Bigfoot encounters, which mostly occur under cover of darkness, makes it all the more unusual. The witnesses, exclusively rural residents, have shared their experiences of hearing strange sounds before coming face-to-face with this large bipedal canine figure while engaging in activities such as hunting or hiking. Reflecting on these accounts, I can't help but wonder about the existence of such a creature. It raises questions that linger in my mind. What could be the nature of this mysterious being, and what secrets do the woods hold within their depths? I adventured into the vast wilderness of the New Mexico woods, a seasoned hunter in pursuit of elusive prey. My target was the elk, its noble presence and impressive antlers, a testament to the grandeur of nature. With my trusty rifle in hand, I scoured the landscape, my keen eyes scanning the horizon for any sign of movement. As I peered through the scope of my rifle, a sight greeted me that defied all logic and reason. Amidst the swaying trees and dappled sunlight, a figure emerged unlike anything I had ever laid eyes upon. It stood tall and upright, a bipedal form that seemed to meld the traits of both man and beast. Its muscular frame was covered in coarse matted fur that glistened in the dappled light. Its elongated limbs hinted at an unearthly strength, and as my gaze fixated on its hands, I could see sharp, claw-like appendages that protruded from its fingers, but it was the face that truly sent shivers cascading down my spine. Its visage was a fusion of primal savagery and eerie intelligence. The creature possessed a snout elongated and filled with menacing teeth that gleamed in the sunlight. Its eyes, burning like orbs of molten amber, seemed to hold a depth of knowledge that transcended human comprehension. I could feel my heart pounding within my chest as I grappled with the sheer impossibility of what lay before me. Every instinct within me screamed to take aim and fire, to eliminate this otherworldly being that stood before me. Yet something deep within my soul told me that it would be wrong, that there was more to this creature than met the eye. In a state of awe and disbelief, I watched as the creature disappeared into the dense undergrowth. Seamlessly blending with the wilderness from which it had emerged, the haunting memory of its presence lingered in the air, as if an ethereal whisper that urged me to question the boundaries of what I believed to be true. That day I did not succeed in capturing the elk that had brought me into these woods. Instead I left with a far greater treasure, a profound encounter with the unknown. The experience filled my mind with questions and contemplation, challenging the very foundations of my understanding. This happened in Cairns, Australia. It was New Year's Eve back in 2012, me and a few mates. Some are indigenous. We were at my house in Bayview before heading clubbing as we were talking and having a yarn. I asked my bro if we should go for a walk up the hill. My bro agreed and the rest joined. As we were walking up Bayview, there was a mountain path that you can track up. In a forest mind, you, I heard the trees shake as if something was jumping from tree to tree. I asked the boys if they heard it, but they laughed as we got higher up the mountain path. I saw two black figures, big tank, looking things at the fork of the mountain path. My boys stood frozen, and I had cold chills. As we stared at these things, my aboriginal friend said to me, ''Let's run now.'' But my islander friend, being a hero, yelled out and said, ''And I quote, balai nor fright you.'' Right as he said that these two beings rushed us. They must have been eight or nine foot beings. We bolted down that hill, but we heard the footsteps get closer. As we got to the bottom of the street light we looked back and those things stood at the end of the mountain path, and we could all see that these beings had large black wings like an eagle in dark orange eyes. After that, we vowed never to go near the mountain. To this day, I don't know what the heck those things were. One time back in 2008, my daughters and I were heading back to the Dan Res from Sedona, Arizona. We were almost in Del Muerto, Arizona at about 1 a.m. I saw this figure run across the road heading west. You could see right through it. It blended in with the background like Predator the movie. I just thought, you're just tired in seeing things. My oldest was riding shotgun, and she says, did you see that, Dad? I thought she was sleeping like her sister. Decades ago, there was this mountain road on a place called Big Hill. It was the main thoroughfare to get from one county to another, and it wound down the mountain through dense tunnels of trees and down long sloping curves. As the story goes, a woman was killed tragically, and when the culprit wanted to dispose of her body, he shoved her in an old dryer and pushed it over the edge down into the woods of the hill. It wasn't unusual for people to dump their waste in unwanted hair, so it would have been just another piece of junk left behind. After that, people started making reports of seeing a woman walking up and down the hill at night, all alone in the dark tree-lined road. People started to say that you should never leave the window cracked when you're traveling big ill, because drivers have seen her on the side of the road, and then suddenly her face in their rear-view mirror. She would hitch a ride from the top to the bottom, and then would be gone. They always said she was looking for the man who dumped her body, and if you didn't want her hitching a ride, to always have your windows up so she couldn't get in. Some years later, due to the traffic use of that road, they actually redid it, the road entirely, blasted and removed trees, and actually ended up rerouting it entirely to make it better for semis. You can see the remnants of the old road off in the woods, and the few remnants where the old road looks like it crosses over where they built the new road. After they built the new road, there weren't any more reports of the woman on the hill, The superstition went away and the talk of her died down. I think about that from time to time, and I imagine she's still there, walking the old forest road where time has forgotten it, just waiting to find the one who killed her. This past November, I was finishing a two-month project in Wyoming. I worked four. Five days during the week and moonlighted as a DJ at a bar in Riverton. Sometimes I would call a friend just to stay awake as I would wake up at four and be up for around 23 hours straight. One night on the phone, I thought I heard a womanly scream. I was parked by the cabin but had no idea where the noise came from. The canyons made directional noises difficult. I waited a few minutes to see if I could hear it again, but nothing. One night after closing out DJing at around 2.30 a.m. and heading back 18 miles to the cabin, rented out by a big game travel guide that lived next door. I was sharing with my co-workers. I seen a huge, gnarly beast of an animal with huge fangs and the size of me on the side of the road, with blood-red eyes. It scared the living piss out of me as it was in the general area of the cabin. Since it was still a 200-foot walk in complete darkness and with no firearms with me, I slept in the truck. I woke the next morning and told the boys why I slept in the truck. I ain't gonna lie, I was scared. And after describing what I saw and looking around the cabin, I pointed at a taxidermied mountain lion and said actually it looked just like that. At first nobody believed me, even the big game guide neighbor. "'Dave said that mountain lions never came down from the mountain or close to town. "'It wasn't till later that day his Dave neighbor and his daughter came to warn us "'that they spotted a mountain lion from there hunting blind a mere 300 meters away. "'The next day the mountain lion was hit by a truck. "'Luckily not mine.' In high school, my best friend's father was divorced and never remarried, so he had lots of free time to travel. One of his favorite things to do was backpack, alone. In the summer of 2010, he decided to backpack through a rather large canyon somewhere Jordan. He had planned on it, taking him a total of five days to hike from one village to the next via this canyon. On his third day in the canyon, he was awoken by a large brown bear, so he pulled out his camera to take a few photos. As he was scrolling through the photos he had just taken, he scrolled one back too far and found a picture of him sleeping in his tent. All in all, he found over a dozen photos of him sleeping inside his tent with the date stamp being from the night before. He had yet to see a single person during his adventure thus far. After that night, he decided to travel during the night and sleep during the daylight hours. He did this for two days before he could make it to the next village. After that incident, he never went backpacking alone again. I've been going offshore for a couple of decades now. My trips to Alaska have always left a massive impression on me. I think it's the lack of people and the general ominous feeling that the land can give off at times, kind of like people are not really welcome there. When I was crossing the Gulf of Alaska just far enough offshore that you couldn't see the beach, but just the tops of several mountains and Mount Logan, a big bastard, were visible. They looked like teeth, and combined with the larger waves, the whole scene did not look welcoming in the slightest. I can see how ancient mariners could easily come back with tales of monster islands after seeing something like that. I've also recovered gear in the middle of the night in Alaska, right before a storm. The seas were actually really calm, but the skies were pitch black and there were no other lights to be seen. Strangely, the lights of our vessel didn't seem to reflect off of anything in the air either and the feeling was that just off the boat in any direction was nothing then of course are the storms offshore i've been in shitty weather fairly often but only a few times did i really reconsider my life choices getting stuck in a storm is bad but getting stuck in a storm when shit starts to break on a boat is far worse you really do get a feeling that the sea might just take you and it's just beating you for days until something breaks i've only had two occasions where that happened Both times people actually left the industry when the vessel tied up. The feeling of relief as your vessel limps into port and you have sun on your face once more is breathtaking. I was sitting in the campus cafeteria with my friend Sarah when she began to recount a terrifying experience she had just a few days earlier. She had gone to the fifth-floor toilet in the main building, expecting nothing out of the ordinary. As she opened the door, she glanced at the large rectangular mirror above the sinks and saw something that made her blood run cold. In the mirror's reflection, there was a dark figure, slumped over the top, of one of the toilet stalls. Sarah, usually the type to scream and curse, was paralyzed with fear. She couldn't move or make a sound. Instead, she simply closed the door and walked out, her face pale and her eyes wide. As she finished telling her story, our composition teacher, Miss Adams happened to walk by and overheard us. Intrigued, she sat down and shared a story of her own. She told us about one of her students who claimed to see dead people. This student, who played the piano, would often practice in the rooms of the 6th building on campus. One day, she confided in Missy's Adams that every now and then, while she practiced, a row of dead people would appear, just standing there and watching her play. At first, Miss Adams thought the student was merely seeking attention, but as the girl described the dead people in more detail, she began to wonder if there might be some truth to the story. As the conversation continued, we all shared stories of strange and eerie encounters on campus. We laughed nervously, trying to brush off the fear and unease that had settled over us. But deep down, we couldn't shake the feeling that there was something more to these stories. A hidden world of spirits and entities, lurking just beyond our understanding. From that day on, the atmosphere on campus felt different. Every time I walked past the main building's fifth-floor toilet or the piano rooms in the sixth building, I couldn't help but feel a chill run down my spine, and the haunting stories shared by my friend and teacher replayed in my mind. My mom's house on her college campus in Ohio had a friendly ghost that would hide things, flip things upside down turn on lights, etc. She and her roommates named the ghost Mary and called her their paranormal roommate. Flash forward to their ten-year reunion and all the roommates visit the house and talk to the current residents. All boys, and upon mentioning the ghost, they were shocked to find out the boys also knew about the ghost and named it Jerry. Flash forward another five years and the girls living in the house have named the ghost Gary coincidence that all of the names rhyme. I think not. This one time I had to wake up by 4 a.m. and leave by 5 a.m. I got shower, breakfast, take my stuff, and leave my home. It's summertime, so it's dark. I locked the door, walked down the hallway, and turned left to reach the elevator's hall. Put my bags down, push the button for elevators, and when I turn around to go back to the opposite wall, I completely froze as I saw a very round head with big bright round eyes, less than 30 centimeters above the ground and partially hidden around the corner staring at me. I recovered my breath and in curiosity I stepped towards the creature to see what it was. An alien, a garden gnome, someone left for prank, some other bizarre creature. After my first steps, I heard sounds of steps coming from the hall, where the head was staring at me, and I felt another chill down my spine. The steps were coming closer, and I was scared to death and curious to see what it was. Around the same time, the head turns back, and then it came forward, revealing to be my neighbor's cat, and the steps were from my neighbor. I never felt so scared to death and curious at the same time in my life, Now I know if I really see an alien, I would go towards instead of running away. It was really scary and interesting at the same time. About seven years ago, I had a remarkable encounter with two Sasquatch in the Blue Mountains of Walla Walla, Washington. It was shortly after I'd relocated from Houston, Texas, and I decided to take my dad's bug for a drive. I ventured up Mill Creek Road, which led me to Squaw Springs Campgrounds. It was quite a journey, about an hour and a half into the blues on a somewhat gravel road. If I recall correctly, it was either July or August. As dusk settled in, I turned on my headlights while navigating a bend in the road. That's when I spotted them crossing the road. Two impressive creatures, One stood approximately eight feet tall while the other was around seven feet. They locked eyes with me and the reflection of my headlights revealed their eyes to be a striking yellow color. The sun's gentle glow highlighted their bodies, making it evident that these were not bears or elk. I brought my vehicle to a halt as they crossed, hoping to catch another glimpse as they disappeared into the woods. Unfortunately, I couldn't see anything further nor did I detect any peculiar odors. I searched for tracks, but the ground was too hard to find any conclusive evidence. So I returned to my bug and headed home. A week or two later, while shopping at the Eastgate Mall, I stumbled upon a Bigfoot display, arranged by two individuals named Paul Freeman and Wes Summerlin. They had set up an exhibit featuring two stuffed Bigfoots. Intrigued, I shared with them my encounter in the blues, They informed me that the creatures I would seen were a male and female couple that had been spotted numerous times. Freeman, in particular, had made notable discoveries, uncovering miles of tracks and capturing video footage of Bigfoot in the area. However, over time, it became evident that Freeman had fabricated a significant portion of his evidence which was disappointing because I believed he possessed genuine material. Nonetheless, I formed a friendship with the Summerlin family and even accompanied them on a search for Bigfoot. Wes in particular had a wealth of stories, hair samples, photographs, and more. He never sought to sensationalize the matter. He simply believed, and that was enough. Unfortunately, he was passed away some time ago, and I don't believe any substantial research is ongoing in the area. However, a friend and I still venture into the mountains a couple of times a week, continuing our quest. I know Sasquatch is here. I've seen them with my own eyes. The number of sightings may have decreased since Freeman's departure, leading some to doubt their existence. It's an ironic situation because deep down you know Bigfoot is real, yet the evidence you stumble upon sometimes points in the opposite direction, despite your first-hand encounters. Back in 2020, one my family took a trip to Lake Sanitla in North Carolina, a beautiful lake that's rich in Native American history and surrounded by mountain trails. We decided to go on one of these trails on an overcast day. I'm not an athletic person and suffer from asthma, so I was behind the rest of my family by myself. About almost halfway through the hike, I heard my sister yell my birth name, but it sounded like it was off the trail. She never calls me by real name, just my nickname. I've had since I was a baby. It sounded like she was scared, so I was very tempted to run off and find her, but I knew my sister wasn't stupid. She wouldn't go off the trail, even in case of an emergency. I quickly caught up to the rest of my family, and my sister was there with him, resting on some rocks next to a waterfall, chatting away and taking pictures. I asked my sister if she had called my name. She didn't know what I was talking about. She had been talking to our dad the whole time. I don't know what called my name that day, but I'm glad I didn't listen to it. Who knows what would have happened to me. I haven't been to that trail since this encounter. I don't have a clue what called my name. If you're educated on Appalachian folklore, please give me some insight on what happened to me. As the morning sun gently streamed through my window, I had no inkling that my life was about to take an unexpected turn. At exactly 7 a.m., a knock on my door interrupted the tranquility of my morning routine. Curiosity peaked. I opened the door to find a man dressed entirely in black standing before me. His sharp attire and serious demeanor immediately grabbed my attention. He wasted no time in introducing himself and ushering me towards a sleek black Buick sedan parked nearby. Something about his presence exuded an air of secrecy and urgency. Without exchanging many words, we embarked on a journey to a nearby cafe. Once seated, he began to speak with a captivating intensity, recounting an extraordinary sighting he had experienced the previous day near Tacoma, Washington State, the images he painted were so vivid and detailed that it felt as though he had transported me to the very scene of the sighting. He described six peculiar objects, doughnut, shaped and unlike anything he had ever seen before. His words were laced with a sense of awe and trepidation, as if he had stumbled upon a secret that demanded utmost discretion. It was then that he made a chilling statement urging me to remain silent about the incident if I truly cared for my family's well-being. His words hung in the air, and I couldn't help but feel a knot of unease forming in the pit of my stomach. Who was this man, and why was he sharing such sensitive information with me? The gravity of the situation became all too real. Days later, as I attempted to make sense of the encounter, I found myself faced with a devastating turn of events two Air Force intelligence officers, Frank Brown and William Davidson, who had been involved in questioning me about the sighting tragically lost their lives in a plane crash on their return to base. The timing and circumstances were far too coincidental to ignore. Then fate struck again. Kenneth Arnold, another investigator involved in unraveling the truth behind the sighting, experienced engine failure during a flight back home. Forced to crash, land he narrowly escaped with his life. The pattern of inexplicable incidents unfolded before me, weaving a sinister tapestry of danger and secrecy. Rumors began to circulate attempting to discredit the authenticity of my encounter. Some claimed that I had admitted to fabricating the entire story. However, a teletape from the Seattle FBI Special Agent George Wilson to J. Edgar Hoover shed light on the truth. It stated that I had not admitted the story was a hoax, but rather mentioned the possibility of claiming it as such to avoid further trouble. As a park ranger, I've become immune to many weird and strange occurrences in the woods unnatural-looking animals, strange figures, and even paranormal phenomena have become a part of my everyday life. The rule I follow is simple. As long as I don't interfere in matters that don't concern me, I'll be safer. Most of the time this rule works, but sometimes things get far too real and far too scary. I belong to a group of rangers stationed in a remote corner of the park, surrounded by a vast forest Last week, something happened that I can't simply ignore, like I usually do. My partner, whom I'll call Carlos, and I had patrol duty for the night. We had recently been relocated to a cabin where many rangers had stayed in the past. It was a decent little space with two adjoining rooms and a small bathroom. Luxury was the last thing on my mind in the middle of nowhere, especially considering the nature of our job. Around 7 p.m., after having some tea and reading the news, we put on our gear and left the cabin. With not many rangers stationed nearby at the moment, we had a lot of ground to cover. I personally enjoyed walking in the dark, finding it strangely peaceful. It had been scary in my early years as a ranger, but over time I found solace in the tranquility it offered. I once asked Carlos if he preferred patrol duty in the dark, but he didn't care for it most people wouldn't. As we walked, I observed the thick, tall trees, the moist brown soil, and a cool breeze. The holy trinity of good vibes, in my opinion. I would have liked to listen to some music, but it tended to make me drowsy, so I settled for the random noises of the night. The wind oscillated between sudden gusts and gentle breezes, creating a rhythmic symphony of rumbling leaves and crackling bushes. We walked in silence for an hour before getting bored and engaging in some small talk. Carlos began by cracking pathetically lame jokes, which eventually transitioned into sharing horror stories. Despite his orthodox background and belief in the paranormal, his stories were genuinely spine-chilling. Around two or three in the morning, we sat down on a fallen tree. I took out some juice, but it felt unnaturally cold for the weather. The condensation on the outside surprised me. I didn't remember bringing them that cold. Looking back, it should have been a major red flag. As we shared more stories, Carlos was in the middle of telling a particularly eerie tale about a flying vinegar. deep vampire from the Philippines when I heard a groan. My instincts told me it was the sound of an injured creature, but it didn't feel like an animal. It sounded human, like the grunts of an older woman in pain. The groan was distinct, and both Carlos and I had jumped up from the log simultaneously. He had heard it, too. I nodded at Carlos, and he pointed his flashlight in the direction of the sound. The groan came again, a little more distant this time. I called out, but there was no response. With my right hand on my firearm and my flashlight in my left, I followed the direction of the voice, repeatedly calling out. The groan echoed once more, and we increased our pace. I led the way while Carlos hurriedly trailed behind, continuously calling out, Hello! Is anybody there? After a minute of walking, we discovered the source of the voice, a short, pale old woman wearing a black cape. She was facing towards us, but looking straight down, mumbling something. Her appearance sent shivers down my spine. She was bald, and her skin was a dead-looking dark blue. Her cape was tattered and baggy, and there was an unmistakable sense of unnaturalness about her. But in the off chance that this was a human in need of help, we were obligated to assist her. Carlos approached the woman cautiously, asking if she was hurt. When she looked up, I saw something that chilled me to the core. Her eyes were pitch black, devoid of any humanity. They seemed empty, as if there was nothing behind them. Her skin, too, had an eerie, lifeless quality. It was then that I noticed her mouth, a gaping ear-to-ear gash on her face. In that moment, everything within me screamed that this wasn't a human being. The unnaturalness of her appearance sent waves of fear coursing through my body. The woman, or whatever she was, suddenly pulled up her hood and shifted her gaze toward me. Without speaking a word, she transmitted something to me telepathically. And then, in an instant, she vanished into thin air, as if she had disintegrated into nothingness. I stumbled backward, feeling a mix of disbelief, terror, and confusion. Was this encounter with an alien or a demonic entity? I looked over at Carlos, and his face was paler than I had ever seen it before. He knelt down, audibly whispering a prayer under his breath. It took me a while to find the strength to get up, my legs still trembling violently, but somehow they still functioned. We made our way back to the cabin following the markers on the trees. Once inside, I poured some hot tea while Carlos sat at the table with his head in his hands. It was around 5 a.m., and I couldn't help but feel the weight of the traumatic encounter we had just experienced. I mustered up the courage to talk about what we had seen, but Carlos remained silent, unresponsive to my inquiries. Seeing him in that state made me realize the profound impact this encounter had on both of us. By 9 a.m. I decided to contact my superior and inform them about the incident. However, their response was dismissive, questioning if we had been drinking on the job. Frustrated, I hung up, realizing that we were on our own in dealing with this strange occurrence. We had broken the rule, interfering in a matter that concerned us, and now we had to live with the consequences. Despite the trauma, Carlos and I couldn't resist the pull of the forest. Night after night, we returned to the woods, still following the rule, in hopes that it would protect us. This job meant everything to me, and I didn't have a plan B. But deep down, I couldn't shake the fear of encountering that sinister presence again. I tried researching the incident, hoping to find some reference or explanation. It reminded me of the legend of La Llorona a weeping ghost from Mexican folklore. Whatever it was, whether an alien or a demon, it radiated at an undeniable evil. Why it chose to reveal itself to us, I may never know. All I hope for now is that I never have to see it again, and that the rule we've abided by for so long will continue to keep us safe. New Orleans 2005. I remember that night vividly as if it happened just yesterday. I was a police officer responding to a call about a possible break and at the home of an elderly deceased person. Little did I know that this was just the beginning of a series of bizarre encounters that would shake the foundations of our beliefs. As we investigated the case further, another call came in. Two suspicious individuals were spotted prowling around a boarded-up house near the swamps. My fellow officers and I rushed to the scene, ready to confront any potential threats. We approached cautiously, our hearts pounding with a mix of anticipation and fear. In the dim light, we saw them, two men dressed in black suits, standing ominously in the shadows. Without hesitation, we made the decision to confront them but when we fired our weapons, they vanished into thin air, leaving no trace behind. It was as if they had simply melted away, defying all logic and explanation. We scoured the area, searching for any sign of their escape route, but found nothing. It was as if they had never existed in the first place. Confusion and disbelief filled our minds as we tried to comprehend what we had just witnessed. Weeks later, another unsettling incident occurred. A man claimed to have been abducted by an unknown creature. He described them as tall, pale figures with no hair, their faces resembling skulls. Despite their otherworldly appearance, there were enough human-like features to distinguish them from any known creature. According to the witness, they attempted to communicate, but their language was incomprehensible, a jumble of sounds that defied all linguistic understanding. The encounter left him bewildered and shaken, struggling to make sense of the inexplicable. Officer Mike Farrell, a senior member of the New Orleans Police Department, expressed his frustration in finding any information about these creatures online. He knew that the accounts of these encounters would be met with skepticism and disbelief without concrete evidence, as the reports continued to pile up each one more baffling than the last, it became clear that there was something extraordinary happening in the swamps of New Orleans. Strange sightings, unexplained phenomena, and a sense of unease permeated the air. One particular incident shared by an off-duty officer sent chills down our spines. He had witnessed a fellow officer disturbed by an encounter during their shift. They had been dispatched for a welfare check on an elderly woman but upon arrival, the house appeared untouched. No signs of forced entry or any indication that someone had been there. Curiosity got the better of them, and they decided to keep an eye on the property. To their astonishment, they noticed a light flickering in one of the windows, despite there being no visible connection to any source of electricity. Determined to investigate, they rushed inside, only to find an empty house devoid of any signs of life. As they resumed surveillance outside, the officers' attention was drawn to movement in the shadows. Two figures emerged from the darkness, one tall and imposing, the other small and mysterious. They watched in disbelief as the figures approached the house, but before they could react, the figures vanished into thin air, leaving them perplexed and filled with an eerie sense of dread. Something inexplicable hung in the air that night, an electrical charge that added to the surreal nature of the events unfolding before us. These encounters defied all logical explanation, leaving us questioning our understanding of the world and the presence of forces beyond our comprehension. To this day, the strange occurrences around the elderly woman's missing case, the unexplained lights in the house, and the enigmatic figures that haunted our thoughts remain unresolved. The incident I'm about to share took place in the bordering area of Guyanana in Venezuela. It was an encounter that left the dog owner shaken and described it as both bizarre and distressing. In an interview with the local media, Mr. Amsterdam recounted the events that unfolded on that evening. He had been taking a leisurely walk with his faithful canine companion when, suddenly, a colossal black creature emerged, seemingly intent on attacking him. He referred to it as a big black monster, its presence evoking fear and trepidation. However, his dog, in an act of unwavering loyalty and bravery, leaped into action, putting its life on the line to protect its owner. The description, mister. Amsterdam provided of the creature was chilling. He likened it to something out of a nightmare, referring to it as monster, like and diabolical. The creature ruthlessly constricted the dog's neck, snuffing the life out of it with a savage onslaught. After the heinous act, the creature swiftly departed the scene, leaving Mr. Amsterdam in shock and grief. Grateful for his own survival, he expressed gratitude to God and his fallen companion for saving his life. The loss of his beloved pet had left an indelible mark on his heart, as his faithful companion had accompanied him everywhere. As news of the incident spread like wildfire on social media, others came forward sharing their own strange experiences in the same vicinity. Gavin Liverpool, a user on social media, recounted an incident from the early 2000s when a similar creature attacked a dog near the Macuria police outpost. The creature had vanished into the darkness, leaving the dog to suffer until its demise. Speculations ran rampant among the residents, with some suggesting that the creature could be a werewolf or an evil spirit that only prowls the night. However, there were also those who criticized the dog owner, asserting that he should have been more cautious in protecting his pet. A user named Sheik Abraham expressed deep sympathy for the dog's tragic fate, but also emphasized the importance of human responsibility in such situations. Some residents argued that if the creature had been a black panther, it would have carried its meal into the night instead of simply abandoning it. The incident left the community bewildered and on edge, Grappling with the mystery of the creature's identity and intention, it served as a chilling reminder of the unseen forces that coexist alongside us, lurking in the shadows of the night. As the debates and speculations continued, the people of the bordering region remained cautious, wary of the unknown and the secrets it held. I was a young highway patrol officer patrolling the highways of Maryland. It must have been around 2 or 3 in the morning. I was driving on Interstate 95, closing up towards Baltimore. The speed limit in that section of the highway is 65 miles an hour. I would always patrol between the two left lanes so people could see my lights and not get too comfortable driving 20 over the speed limit. As I came up to where 695 splits off from 95 northbound heading towards Fullerton, there was this dark figure standing in the right lane ahead of me. It looked like a person, but it did not move at all, just stood there next to the barrier wall separating the right lane from the exit ramp for Fullington Avenue North coming out of Philly. So naturally I sped up slowly to catch up with this person, thinking they must be injured or something. As I get closer, still maintaining the speed limit or just under, this thing turns its head to look at me, and I notice it has two glowing red eyes in the center of its face. It was very intense and terrifying, but what struck me most was its teeth. This thing had fangs like a wolf or bear, very sharp edges protruding out of its mouth. Its whole demeanor was extremely menacing. It did not look human at all, but when it turned around and stared right at me, I slammed on my brakes in sheer terror. I managed to get myself together after a couple of seconds speeding away, hoping not to lose control of my car and wreck. Ironically, I heard radio communications from another officer about ten minutes later that a driver up the road had witnessed an upright, decaying animal running across the road. It was as if it had been hit by a car and left a trail of blood on the pavement for about 50 yards before completely disappearing from sight, crossing into another street. I'm not sure what this thing is, but I've never seen anything like it. Some friends and I would take my truck up in the mountains during the winter time and tow someone on a tube across the snow. We'd drop the tailgate in my old long bed ford, and a few guys would sit in the back with one of those bazillion candlelight spotlights. When I was driving, it'd be fun to make really wide turns in the dark so the person on the tube didn't have the luxury of headlights or taillights to somewhat illuminate their trail. The person in the bed of the truck with the spotlight would be funny and shine the light clear off to the side so it was pitch black if you were on the tube. One particular winter night, a snowstorm was rolling in, so we heated up to the usual spot, and it was dark that night. A friend was on the tube. I was driving watching my mirrors as I'd swing him wide enough he had little light to see anything. The guy with the spotlight shined the light clear to the side of the truck, and as I checked my mirror and I made eye contact with a guy dressed in jeans, a red plaid shirt, and a blaze-orange ball cap, As we made eye contact I lost all control of my body for probably only five seconds, but it felt like an eternity. I stopped the truck and turned it around and asked the guys if they saw him. They all said no, so I flipped the truck around and turned on the high beams and they shined the spotlight all over. I got out and looked for footprints in the fresh snow and saw nothing. That night we went back home and I told my dad about the weird experience and he didn't think anything of it. A week later on the news the police reported finding a body in the area close to where we were and asked for any tips. My old man convinced me to call the police and tell them we were up in the area and saw that guy. I called and the police said they'd send an investigator over. He came over to the house. I recalled the same experience saying it happened seven days earlier. As soon as I said that, the investigator asked me, you are sure on your date, which I was positive, and he showed me a picture of the body they found wearing the same red plaid shirt and blaze-orange ball cap. He informed me the body had been on the mountain for at least one month, so I must have just seen something. Turns out it was a man who suffered from some mental handicaps and committed saw on the mountain one month prior to when I saw him.